Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Lynn couldn't explain what she was feeling. She didn't think it was normal to have this strange discomfort, this creeping paranoia. It wasn't being the target of hate as much as it was the anticipation of it. This program features the work of 2021 writer Daniel Tam Claiborne. In the first half, you'll hear his conversation with curator E.J. Coe. Daniel, can you tell us about your Jack Straw project? Yes, absolutely. So the project really... It's a novel that deals with two female protagonists who are butting up against the culture in which they're born and striving to find a sense of identity and belonging in cultures that I think are a little bit um, apprehensive and somewhat hostile to accepting them. And the crux of the project involves two protagonists, uh, one who is Chinese-American and one who's Chinese, and in some ways they sort of switch places in... um, going after uh, an idealized sense of self where they feel like they can be actualized and coming up against challenges that threaten both the way that they see themselves and the way that they see each other. And I think there's a lot of context that I've been able to draw, thankfully, from contemporary affairs that really show in stark contrast the way in which even though we have similar experiences and we are in some ways bound by particular identity markers, whether it be ethnicity or nationality. There is still a way for forces outside of our control, whether that be societal or geopolitical, that threaten to break those bonds. And so it's an exercise, I think, in these two protagonists trying to find themselves while also never losing sight of each other. Can you give us a little bit of backstory just for those who might not be too familiar with the historical and contemporary relationships mm. with, uh, as briefly as you can about China-U.S. relations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, China-U.S. relations are, it's often touted right now, they're actually at the lowest point that they've been since we normalized relations in the 70s with Nixon and since modern contemporary polling and Pew Research has kind of been around. And I think there's a lot of factors that have really contributed to that. Certainly, it hasn't been helped at all by the hardline rhetoric that we've seen over the last four years. But even before that, you know, we've seen a, a breakdown over the way in which the U.S. and China have been able to negotiate and compromise over a variety of different realms, whether it's kind of tit-for-tat tariffs, whether it's, you know, calls for currency manipulation. I think really the root of it comes from this idea of competitive anxiety. And I think that's a large part to play, I think, from both sides in terms of not wanting to provide concessions to the other half and also wanting to stand our ground and believe strongly in our morals and our right to sort of govern within the world. And seeing another power come up quite rapidly, I think, is a massive you know, threat <laughs> to, to the U.S.'s own interests abroad. Um, and I think that threat, instead of manifesting as a way in sort of cooperative engagement, it's manifesting in 
outright hostility. And I think that's reflected both at a macro level in terms of the way our governments are working. And it really trickles down to individuals and people. And I think that's where we see the most stark and challenging fallout from this entire kind of chaotic four years is just individuals' lives are being upended and in unprecedented ways. And the measures that we're taking to sanction China, quote-unquote, are affecting individuals who are often very distanced from a lot of these larger sociopolitical campaigns. And so um, the burden really falls to people who it really shouldn't be falling on. Um, And I think that's something that I'm really hoping to address and think about when we think about fiction and the ability to talk about tolerance and empathy and highlight individual stories is to make the case that there are lived experiences that are worth thinking about in ways that are more sympathetic and more tolerant and with greater understanding. That feels like the power of fiction and what we need right now. And, you know, I'm really wondering about how this relationship and these tensions, how they manifest in your characters. Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, The original idea for this novel had been coming up for a long time. Um, but as I was beginning to write into this story, and the majority of this writing has happened over the last 18 months, I would say, um, it's been really heavily influenced by what's been going on in our world. I think, uh, not surprisingly, it's also obviously quite hard to avoid, uh, but the backdrop of contemporary U.S.-China relations, obviously everything stemming from the trade war all through COVID, through intense Asian-American uh, stigmatization in the U.S. to anti-Chinese foreign sentiment, banning of students from being able to get visas. You know, the list sort of is, is almost endless at this point. And so a lot of these these issues that we're experiencing and dealing with in the world today, I think very much influence the way these characters are trying to navigate the world and the various challenges that they're butting up against. That's incredible because they're both transplants and they start off in the story as looking for something else elsewhere. And you mentioned this theme of being an exile, of being marginalized no matter where you go because of your identity. Yeah, I'm really drawn to these two characters, I think both because they influence different parts of myself in some ways and also from people I hold very dear to me. But there are two protagonists, uh, one who's Chinese-American. Her name is Liz, and she goes to live in rural China after the, the passing of her mother. And the other protagonist is named Lin. She is a Chinese national who is going to school at the university where Liz is teaching in rural China. And she ends up, for a variety of reasons, coming to the U.S. And the experience that they have of, of in some ways, switching places, of kind of crossing into borders and territories that I think on the face of it, they would have expected to be a welcoming, fertile environment for their growth. Neither of them had felt comfortable in the countries of their birth. And so sort of making the leap and deciding, well, I'm going to go to this place where on paper and in my own mind is sort of that accepting, welcoming place where I'll sort of be lifted up based on on the basis of my identity. Um, and, you know, without spoiling anything, the, of course, the, the reality of the situation is certainly much more complex. And the challenges they face uh, hint at this tension that we that many of us experience between nationality and ethnicity in some ways, and especially within the Asian American community and thinking about Asian American and sort of Asian and and the various ways in which those two forces are countervailing. And so I think that's uh, sort of the core question of, you know, is there a place where I can find belonging and where do my allegiances lie with respect to identity?
is there a word? And I'm wondering because in Korean, there's a word called nunchi, and it's the word for, I suppose it represents the societal pressures mm. and what you need to have in order to grow up in an Asian culture where uh, there are certain mores and there are certain priorities and ways to represent yourself, ways to speak. Um, there's also sort of hierarchies in, in the things you do, in the people you address. And so in Korean, we say, you know, you have to have nunchi in order to survive almost in, in those environments. Yeah. <laughs> But is there something, do you have a word or is there a sense of that? There's absolutely that same sense. I think it, it manifests itself probably in, in somewhat similar ways. Um, the language itself isn't inflected with those levels of hierarchy or authority in the same way that Korean and Japanese are. But there are certainly those societal expressions with respect to elders and certainly the responsibility and the burden, um, of course, up until recently, of, of being an only child growing up in a society where you're supporting kind of the inverse pyramid of, of your parents and then by extension your four grandparents and so uh, absolutely and I, I think there's been really interesting responses to that among Chinese millennial youth uh, and now Gen Z even as well and sort of trying to you know, distance themselves and create uh, some ways of engagement that are feel more germane and more unique to those individual perspectives instead of necessarily buying into the societal pressures and those familial norms and um To mix success, I would say. But yeah, I think it's a very, very widespread phenomenon, absolutely. I just love that we're having this conversation because I don't think I would have heard a conversation like this in many other places. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about your novel and the idea of writing stories from a marginalized place, it's a question of how much do I have to explain? How much exposition is required to say, okay, do you understand this exact part of this practice or language or culture? I mean, and on the other hand, it's how much can you get away without explaining? And if you don't explain, are you willing to lose some of your readers. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's remarkable because that's a very unique issue for writers who write in the diaspora and they're writing as, you know, part of marginalized places, locations of voices. I think you're so right. And I just want to echo exactly what you said too. I'm so grateful to be having this conversation. I think there's something so special about Being able to speak with another Asian American writer, I think that's just you know a, a gift that perhaps a decade ago we wouldn't have the privilege of engaging in this kind of dialogue. So, and I, I can't necessarily speak for other kinds of marginalized literature, but Asian American literature, you know, it's certainly seen an evolution along the lines of you know, kind of starting out in the early days of Maxine Hong Kingston and you know Woman Warrior and Amy Tan of you know saying a word even if the word was inflected in dialect, and then immediately following that up with a definition or providing context or or using italics or whatever it might be. And I think it's been really exciting to see that movement away from just using the word as we would in English and not providing any more context to it. And I think you have, you're reaching audiences at two different levels. One is sort of the the general population who, you know, will be able to ascertain a degree from context. And then I think there is a smaller subset who is familiar with the context and the culture and the language and gains a little bit of additional details through that. And I think for for me, at least as someone who reads 
a lot of Asian American literature, it, it helps, you know, I feel sort of very special being, <laughs> uh, getting to see kind of the behind the curtain view of that. And so I'm, I hope to be able to provide the same experience. Now we'll hear a selection from Daniel's live reading. Sunset again, normally a time for deadlock traffic, but the highway was sparse. Lynn was behind the wheel, going 80, just barely above the speed limit. The radio was off, and Selena was asleep in the passenger seat, the silence in the car punctuated only by the dull rumbling over a rough patch of asphalt or the lopsided heap of belongings in the back seat, trying vainly to find peace. Lynn had insisted on a no-news policy ever since they left Ohio. There was so much going on that it was making her head spin. She couldn't decide which was worse, the situation back home, rising death toll, panic in the hospitals, or the way it was all talked about here, mismanagement, pointing fingers, denial. Even if she still didn't exactly enjoy driving, Lynn was starting to get more comfortable in the driver's seat. With all her attention focused on staying alive, she could block everything else out. In the car, the miles seemed to retreat faster as they burned through the state. Lynn wasn't sure if they were making fewer stops or if there was just less worth seeing. Still, Lynn was worried they might never get to Yellowstone. She felt more and more like they were hurtling toward enemy territory. Over the last several days, she noticed a steady rise in red, white, and blue banners that blanketed highway overpasses and dwarfed roadside farmhouses. But even more troubling was the frequency of billboards bearing a different flag, crossed with blue stripes and studded with 13 stars like sharp points of barbed wire. Lynn knew just how much she and Selena stuck out. But how much was her foreignness obvious to everyone else? Nothing had happened, exactly, but there was still something off-putting about the way people had been looking at her, the glare she got whenever she moved or sneezed or brought a hand to her mouth, like they were itching to pick a fight. The town they stopped in at night to eat was small and unimpressive, about as scenic as the Cuyahoga outpost they'd fled. They got out of the car, and Lynn noticed a sign that was strung between two trees, Welcome to Deadwood. There were two rifle barrels overlaid on top of the words in the shape of an X, and, next to it, the bare skull of an ox. Lynn pushed down a lump in her throat. This was the best you could do? Selina asked, rubbing sleep from her eyes. The street was quiet, and cold enough that Lynn zipped her purple windbreaker under her coat. She felt the condensation of her breath gather inside her mask. Hotels were showing no vacancy signs in their windows, and Lynn immediately wondered if the neon glow was meant only for her and Selena's kind, a pox against foreign-born. A shop called Miss Kitty's had its doors locked, but through the window Lynn could see decorations brandishing those same wrong flags, shirts with a slash over the outline of China, the countenance of an Indian man named Zoltar encased in glass, the price that came with being of somewhere else. Light was emanating from a single bar and restaurant. Its square plexiglass windows were covered in Budweiser decals, and a large inflatable whiskey bottle was strapped to the roof, like the nativity displays Lynn had seen in Cleveland after Christmas. Just outside the restaurant, near where they stood, was a glut of half a dozen motorcycles, each more than twice the size of the delivery bikes Lynn was used to seeing in Qixian. It was as if these bikes had somehow evolved to be bigger, taller seat, louder engine, wider handlebars, capable of swallowing those Chinese motorbikes whole. 
not going in, Lynn said, when she and Selena were facing the door. You said it yourself, Selena said. It's the only place that's open. Well, I'm not hungry, Lynn said, though the rumbling of her stomach gave her away. She'd only had a stick of dried beef and a bag of M&Ms all day. Selena peered at the doors, so dense with bumper stickers that it was hard to tell what was inside, and then turned back to look at Lynn. What are you afraid of? But Lynn just shook her head, and Selena, with a huff, moved in front of her. Take off your mask, Lynn shouted, grabbing her arm. Selena pushed her away, annoyed. What are you saying? It makes us a target, Lynn said, pointing to her own face. Ironic that the equipment meant to protect them only made them more vulnerable to attack. Selena brushed her off. In China, we're chastised for not wearing a mask. We think you're being selfish. She paused and looked at Lin again. Or have you just been away too long? We're not in China, Lin snapped back. We have a right to be selfish. But she realized then it wasn't the mask that people had been looking at. It was her eyes, her skin, her hair. Things that she was born with, much harder to conceal or explain away. This hasn't changed anything, Selena said. We were a target before this, and we will be one after this passes, too. She pulled open the metal handles of the double doors, leaving Lynn out on the street alone. A cold wind blew down the empty block, and Lynn shivered in spite of herself. She felt guilty for letting Selena go in alone, and she dreaded to imagine if something happened to her while she'd been cowering outside the whole time. The walls of the restaurant are covered in expired license plates. The bathrooms are labeled cowboys and cowgirls, and there are plastic trout dangling from the light fixtures. Everyone is white, single men, biker couples, families. The waitstaff is clad in white blouses and pencil skirts. Hanging up are bull skulls, bleached photos of ranch hands, a neon Bud Light sign with a blonde country singer holding a lasso. Selena goes up to the counter and orders two burgers, fries, sodas. It's the most basic order, so simple that nothing can go wrong, but the waiter mishears, or pretends to mishear, makes some joke at Selena's expense. It's harmless enough, what at a different time might have simply been ignored, but too much has changed, and someone needs to pay. A disagreement ensues. Selena, in her takeout English, is quick to talk back. The waiter motions to the kitchen, and a group of other staff suddenly appear, wearing studded leather jackets, bare heads tied with bandanas. The biggest, meanest one has a gravelly voice and smells like ash. I'll explain in language she might understand. He brandishes a few of his teeth. There's an altercation. They all pile on. There are customers in the restaurant, enough to do something to stop it. But, like Lynn, no one does. All set, Selena said, as she walked past Lynn, two bags in her hand. They were heading back toward the car. The only light was from the headlamp of a motorcycle parking across the street. Lynn was quiet, her body still buzzing. What did they say? She asked, finally. They asked me if I wanted ketchup, Selena said. I hate ketchup, so I said, no, we won't have any. She turned back toward Lynn. I hope that's okay. Lynn couldn't explain what she was feeling. She didn't think it was normal to have this strange discomfort, this creeping paranoia. It wasn't being the target of hate as much as it was the anticipation of it. It became a survival instinct to curl herself inward, 
small enough that there was no surface area left to attack. Lynn wanted to believe in that most quintessential thing about America, that everyone was entitled to their own beliefs. She couldn't blame people for wanting to keep things the way they were, for turning away the outsiders, the people who came in with their own unfounded opinions about a country they barely understood. It was a country founded on aggression, where in order to be right, someone else had to be wrong. But thinking about the people who lived there, who had to endure that sense of injustice on a daily basis, made Lynn feel like her grief was small and petty by comparison. Lynn walked back to the car gingerly, the ground like a pane of glass she had to prevent from shattering. Liz had told her that homesickness was for people who couldn't assimilate. It was only when you don't feel like you fit in that you start to miss the things that are familiar. No matter what she was experiencing, Lynn knew one thing for sure, that no one could relate to it more than Liz. To be accepted and not by your own kind, never truly knowing where you belong. With the two countries jockeying over her loyalties, Lynn wondered what it would be like not to pick either side. She embraced her foreigner status, a person who belonged nowhere. Once inside the car, Selena started the engine and heat gushed out of the vents. They ate their burgers in silence, curly fries, a straw-lodged sip of Coke. It tasted like every trip to KFC in Qixian and every fast food drive through she'd stopped at since she'd been in America. It tasted like nothing, and exactly like home. Thanks so much. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production, produced by Levi Fuller and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by Andrew Weathers, produced in part through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2021 curator of this program is E.J. Coe, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keene. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Michael Folks and Cecilia Ayers for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.